Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's podcast, I talk with writer, storyteller, and bon vivant, And as Belina, we talk about freedom, creativity, knowing yourself, owning up to what matters to you and living into that. And uh, it was just a fun conversation. I really love this woman. Um, Go support her. Follow her at IBWrites on Twitter and sign up to her email newsletter. And if you ever want to work with me, if you're interested in coaching, um, shoot me an email, Aaron at AaronConlin.com. And like and subscribe this podcast. Like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you really like it, leave a positive review. Hey, Inez. Hey, Erin. <laughs> oh, thanks so much for coming on this show. I'm so excited to have you. No, thanks for having me. I haven't uh, been on a podcast in a while, so this is nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so that I don't over-explain who you are, who are you? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'm a writer, storyteller, and bon vivant. That's my tagline. <laughs> <laughs> what is just a, what is bon vivant to you? Um, I think to me, uh, it's someone who really tries to embrace the fun, joyful, and slightly chaotic parts of life. Okay. I am not, yeah. Which is funny to describe myself that way because I can be a pretty cranky and moody person, but I love, uh, I love food. I love the arts. I love traveling. I love sensuality in the most like widest, you know, broadest of um, ways of understanding that term. So I like to add it in there. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate that, especially from a fellow moody, cranky person. I feel like if you relate to yourself that way and you don't also relate to yourself as a person who enjoys joy, then you're just sitting in the shit all the time. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, it's – yeah, just because <laughs> I think just because I am aware of darkness in the world and in myself, I just try not to let it uh, overwhelm my thoughts to a point where like, I disassociate from the good mm-hmm. and the fun parts of the world. So this so the bond beyond, I think, is also just a reminder, you know, <laughs> like, oh, by the way, we're here to have fun. <laughs> Yeah, a little. I'm in a very YOLO mindset right now. So <laughs> so tell me more about this YOLO mindset. Well, you know, but for your listeners who do not know, um, I am also someone who is currently living off a suitcase. I, 
I was living in Chicago for a decade. I decided I had had enough, but I couldn't figure out where to go next. So I guess my plan B then was to just uh, sell most of my stuff or put it in storage, pack a few things in the suitcase and carry on and take off for the road. So I'm in New York right now, but I'm only here until September 10th. And then I have a bunch of little trips planned, but I really don't know where I'll be going next. (laughs) Where are your little trips to? So first, I have a bachelorette party in Nashville, which is getting, yeah, which is obviously with Delta, it's getting more and more uh, dicey or dire, I think, with every passing day. But we're, we're rallying in the sense that we're going to go. It might just mean a lot of like, let's do picnics in the park. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then after that, I might like hang out in Nashville for a week or so. And then I have... Um, a personal writing retreat that I booked for myself at the Highlights Foundation, which is in uh, Pennsylvania. Like I know. Highlights Magazine? Yeah. From when we were kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have a retreat center? So they have a whole massive, like, you know, writing studio and workshop center and retreat center. And so a lot of times they will offer, you know, like, week-long or weekend writing workshops for writers, especially for, you know, uh, YA writer or like children writers, illustrators. Um, But then they also have an option where you can just book a cabin in their retreat center. And so I'm doing that. I know. So excited. And then it gets very foggy as to what I'm doing. And then I have to go back to Chicago for a conference and a wedding for three weeks. And after that, it really is a question mark. Like, I have no idea where I'm going to go. So is that like the end of October? After October, you have no idea where you're going to be? Yeah, like mid midway through October, that's when I have to figure out my next my next uh, temporary stay, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so exciting and also a little terrifying. It is, I think. Um, and I don't want this to become like a COVID episode because I'm like really fucking bored of talking or thinking about it. But I mean, part of the part of kind of what's holding me back right now is because I am optimistic, which is weird that Delta will kind of burn through and vaccine rates are going up in the country. Um, So by October, maybe the fear we have now is like gone or things Mm -hmm. are getting better. And that will determine my decisions in some way. But if things are still getting worse, it might make me go to other places that aren't um, as hard hit because my initial idea was to go to Austin like for a few months, but the Texas governor is batshit insane. And, (laughs) and I'm not necessarily scared of getting like, I'm fully vaccinated. I don't know. You know, I'm not, it's not about being scared of getting Delta. It's more like if I can choose between being in an environment where quote unquote, things are somewhat back to normal versus being in an environment where I will feel the responsibility to, you know, hold back from going anywhere indoors, from socializing, mm-hmm. etc. Like, I prefer just going to some little bubble. <laughs> I totally get it. And what I really like about what you're up to now is one, I think a lot of times we have this idea that stability is something we can just create and live in forever. Right. Yes. So like you have a home, <laughs> 
this is stable, so you are stable now. But that's not necessarily true. Shit hits the fan whether you are in one city or you're in another city. Listen, I tried the whole, uh, oh, let's try this stability thing. And it was the most emotionally unstable part of my whole life. (laughs) Really? Yeah. um, I, like, I, I started out my 20s after college, I should say, Mm -hmm. in a very intense PhD program because I thought being an academic would be a stable career for someone who wanted to write and read. It's not, but we'll get into that later. (laughs) Um, And uh, soon after starting that PhD program, I met a man who would later become my husband and also my ex-husband. But a big part of my 20s was chasing that stability, not necessarily due to pressure. Like, I never fell prey to, like, oh, I have to be married by this age. Like, not that kind of pressure. Mm -hmm. But it was a pressure of, um, but more a pressure of, like, oh, this is what adults do. Like, they try to pick one career and they choose it. And adults try to make a relationship work even when it isn't. And mm-hmm. uh, and then in my case, because I had a very, very nomadic childhood, one thing that I had heard over and over again during my childhood from other people was like, well, adults don't really move the way your parents do. So when you become an adult, you need to find a place to live in forever because that is the healthy thing to do. That's so, that's such a, oh, that's so hard because it just basically tells you as a kid, like your parents are giving you an unhealthy childhood. Yeah, which sucks because my parents are actually really great parents. Like I have, I really get along with my parents and I have no like weird toxic feelings regarding my parents or Mm -hmm. even my childhood, but it's really hard to break through like people constantly telling you like, oh, your childhood was so exciting, but I could never do that to my kids. That must have been so difficult. Like, wow, what a survivor. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I don't know. It sounds like your fucking boring suburban childhood (laughs) created a lot of trauma. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but it takes a very long time to recognize that, um, you know, to recognize that maybe things that work for you on an individual level don't work for a lot of people. And that's fine, you know, but you just kind of have to own it. So a lot of my time in Chicago was actually spent trying to chase that stability. Like, you know, I dropped out of grad school, but then I tried to do like corporate America or stable office job route. And it was terrible in so many ways. And then my marriage imploded, um, you know, and, uh, and thankfully, actually, that showed me really quickly, like, I don't want to be married any like ever again. <laughs> but, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then but then, like, I think of all those pervasive myths were, ge- were given about adulthood. The one that stayed with me the most was like, you're supposed to build a home somewhere. And so I was in Chicago trying to build a home, even though. Like, for so many, even though, like, every couple of years, I'd be like, I need to get out. I need to get out. I need to get out. So I think I would have felt that way in any city, by the way. I don't want like a bunch of Chicagoans coming to yell at me about why their city is the best. I love Chicago. Do do people (laughs) say that to you? Like, have you gotten shit for it? You know what? After the pandemic, I really didn't get shit 
about moving away from Chicago, but because I was planning to do it right before the pandemic hit, I got shit from people about wanting to leave Chicago. Huh. It can be a very defensive uh, city in that yeah. sense. Like I, mean, I think, yeah. <laughs> well, because we're not LA, we're not New York, right? But we yeah. know we relate to ourselves as a big city and we're kind of like, why would you go there when you can stay here? Always. That's always what I, even though, I mean, I know I'm in New York now, but there's other reasons for it. And I'm not necessarily planning on like living here, you know, permanently. Um, But yeah, so even though I wasn't necessarily like defecting to New York or LA, it's like that attitude still stood where it's like, but Chicago has everything. Why would you do this to us? And I'm like, you can stay. I'm happy you're staying. (laughs) You stay, you have your house, I'll visit. And then I can be a citizen of the world. It's fine. Exactly. Um, but I think kind of the pandemic really, uh, you know, with how much upheaval there was, I think everyone, one, didn't really give, like, could not focus on whatever other people's upheavals were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think everyone understood that it's like, well, after this bullshit, uh, do what makes you happy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, so you're a writer. Yes. I know you're writing a young adult novel, but you also write a ton of other things. Yes. <laughs> What do you want to talk about first? Oh, in terms of writing? Um, yeah. Like, which is the, what What project is most important to you right now? My novel has always been the most important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I'm getting very close to having it be something. You know, I'm working in line edits. In line edits, um, I'm going to start querying agents. I want, like, a pretty nice award for the manuscript a few months ago, which gave me a really like good boost. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, but it's interesting because as you mentioned, I write a lot of things. And I think at this point, I've always seen myself as a fiction writer, always. Mm-hmm. But I think the world sees me as a nonfiction or like journalist freelance writer, because that's what, because that is the vast amount of writing I've done. Um, and I'm not ashamed of that. Like, I'm really proud of all the bylines I have and, you know, other projects I've worked on, but part of the pandemic upheaval and especially being in New York, I've been thinking like that I might be at a crossroads with my writing in that sense. What do you mean? Um, like I'm getting to a point, I mean, most writers make their living off a billion things you know (laughs) so uh among the many billion things that i make a living off has been you know content marketing um and translation and i've gotten to a point where i make like enough money to support myself from content marketing and translation and that's fine um but then i've put in a lot of energy and effort to also place articles and reviews and essays in websites and publications. And I'm sitting here thinking like, well, that's been really fun, but like, I never wanted to be a journalist. So why am I doing this? (laughs) Other than to have the validation of saying like, oh, I'm a writer. And like, you can go to the avclub.com and see my writing. Because people really don't think of you as a writer, unless they see that somewhere. I mean, it's super interesting, right? Because there's how we relate to ourselves 
And then there's how the world sees us. And then there's, in addition to that, the what are the credentials to prove to the world that how I see myself is how you should see me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, where are you, like, what are you thinking for yourself? What are you looking at towards the future? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, I, you know, I've spent most of the summer not pitching at all. You know, I've mostly spent it working on line edits and then working on a really cool literary translation project. Um, and uh, and just I've been thinking that if I'm going to once again blow up my life, which is what I'm doing now, like I do like ceremonial, <laughs> like <laughs> just implode your life every few months. That <laughs> Yeah, like ceremonial forest fires to my life. Like every five years, I'm just like, fuck yours, I'm doing so that's what I'm going through right now. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's time to really give more the like literary writing life a try, which I mean, listen, like freelance writing for websites already gives you like very little money mm -hmm. like literary writing gives you no money <laughs> like you can submit to journals they won't pay you at least like me writing for Shondaland pays me you know <laughs> yeah yeah um but I'm like I don't know maybe it's something I I need to allow myself and I have like a newsletter too which has been a bit on hiatus in the summer because I really wanted to focus on line edits. Um, but when it comes back, I am toying with the idea of expanding it, but also making it like a paid thing, um, which is very scary because I'm not that well known. Uh, you know, I don't know mm -hmm. who will pay for my writing. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, it's a lot of work. And I think I deserve to get paid for it. <laughs> You do. I'm a big yeah. fan of people having their work valued. And sometimes I think that means you have to value it. Yeah. Um, and it's so true because like everything about my writing life, like the achievements that I've made over the years have all come from actually really owning that part mm -hmm. where it's like, I am calling myself this or I'm putting myself or, you know, I'm putting this project first or putting myself first. Um, you know, like I am now a full-time like freelance writer and translator. That's how I make my money. And which was a really long dream, like dream of mine. And the only time I was finally able to do it was when I was laid off from Northwestern mm -hmm. and I just could not bring myself to apply for another job. I'm just like, I can't. So I said, I'm going to try this for a year. Um, and, you know, now it's, what, 2021? So it's, like, three years, you know? Um, and it seems like my life is constantly teaching me that lesson. Where it's, like, every... T oh, sorry. But, oh, like... No, I was just going to say, bottom line, the lesson. What's the one-liner version of that lesson? Oh. Um, it's... The safe choice always implodes in my face. Always. So the safe choice <laughs> is super dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that is actually even a better distillation of it because I just keep thinking back and every time I've chosen the standard idea of stability, it really has blown up in my face, like marriage blown up, office job laid off, you know, like it's just 
What do you think? Funny. What do you think it is about these "quote unquote" stable things that just flat out doesn't work for you? Um. Ugh, I'm gonna sound like a bratty teenager, but it's also like know thyself. Um, I am not really like I can be a pretty chill person. Like if I'm in a group, I'm not the one that demanding things be my way or the highway or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed that. Um, I really don't like restrictions in my life. I don't know how else to say it. It's like, I don't like being managed and I don't like having to like as an adult, just the idea of asking other adults for permission to do something really grates on me in ways that I can't even understand. Like I was not a rebellious teen either, which is why I find this hilarious now, but it's like, in office jobs, the idea that I would have to tell people I was taking a day off to like go to the dentist was just like, this is insane. We are adults. I should be able to do whatever the fuck I want with my time. Mm-hmm. As long as like, as long as I meet my deadlines or hand in my shit, like what do people care about how I manage my time? Um, so that in terms of like office work stuff and like, you know, you can ask my clients, but like, I I am the person who like hands in everything on time. I'm I'm very responsible when it comes to work. I just cannot have it be coming from like the top. Like it makes me feel like school. <laughs> um and now when it comes to romantic relationships, uh I mean I won't go into all of the reasons why my marriage failed because there were a lot of them, but I think one of the big ones, um And maybe this has to do also with like the fact that I didn't choose a right partner for me, but it's like, I also don't necessarily like uh, making huge life decisions and passing them through a committee and having them like, and, and have someone else have veto power over that decision. Which means that I'm really not made out for marriage. Like there are, I think, sometimes even in the healthiest marriages, times when like someone puts their foot down and like the other partner is like, fine, we can't. Um, I don't react well to that. I just don't. Like I prefer to just leave than Mm -hmm. to have to go through that. So what is it like, what do you think created this fierce independence? Oh, boy. Um. That's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is my childhood, but I wouldn't necessarily, like my siblings didn't necessarily turn out the same way I did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, out of, because I'm one of four, and out of the four, I'm the one that moved around the most. Like it just kind of, like my childhood years just kind of hit at the time when my dad's profession was flourishing, which meant that we moved because of his job more frequently between the ages of like one to 18 for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my other siblings had a bit more stability. Um, so I think there's both good and bad things to this. The good thing is that it just made me really independent right away. Cause like I was moving countries. It wasn't even cities and like being a new kid in school in a totally new country, you just like pick up things really quickly and you realize that no one is actually going to come to like, catch you up or help you. 
<laughs> so like I had that independent streak going right away, almost as a means of survival. Um, I also went to like Catholic school as a teen. And I think that brought out a lot of just like, I am never putting myself through that kind of institution again. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that many adult institutions are like Catholic school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Here's the rules, wear this thing, show up, make sure it looks like you're supposed to, Mm -hmm. and we'll maybe have a little bit of wiggle room in the lines if everything looks okay first. Yeah. And there's always like some creepy old man in power. (laughs) 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 Um, And, um, and I mean, I think, and this is something that I've come to realize really only a few months ago. Um, You know, I, again, I really appreciate my childhood. I think it was a great way to grow up, et cetera. Obviously though, there's pros and cons to everything. And, um, you know, like, like my dad's job was what made us keep moving all the time. And as a kid, I didn't have a voice or a choice about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I went to college and grad school, it was to a certain extent, my choice, like I applied and, you know, to places that I wanted to be in and I picked places that I wanted to be in, but it was still kind of very like, Oh, we're giving you permission to come here. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the big mistake I made as an adult was when I was finally able to choose wherever it is I wanted to live. I got stuck or not stuck. I allowed myself to be in a relationship where the guy was like, you can move to Chicago and be with me or we can just break up. Mm -hmm. Like there was no discussion about like, well, where would we as a couple want to live? How do you feel about this? And, um, And after that, like a lot of the, you know, relationships end due to both people. And I think a lot of the resentment I felt wasn't great. Yeah. Um, And even though I ended up loving Chicago and I stayed there for a long time for many reasons, et cetera, it was just a good, uh, it was just good to know that about myself where it's like, I, I cannot do that to myself again. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like it's either either I just am forever a free spirit, which is totally fine by me, <laughs> like, you know, with lots of lovers until I'm 65. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens after you're 65? No more lovers or just one lover? <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping at 65 I meet the love of my life. And then we're just like in the nursing home, like holding hands forever. <laughs> you know, 65 is not that old, right? Like- it really isn't. <laughs> My parents would murder me if I suggested a nursing home right now to them and they're turning 70 next year. That's so true. Yeah. Okay. So maybe like some nice like little like snowbird community where we jog. Power walk with weights on your arms and your ankles. (laughs) Totally. Um, Or yeah, or I find a partner where like, where this is discussed and choices are made Mm -hmm. together. Um, Your parents are still married, right? Yeah, they are. <laughs> How much do you think like your mom following your dad around has informed mm. this story that you have? Oh boy. Oh boy. Probably. <laughs> because on the one hand, it's like so when my parents got married, my mom was actually making more money than my dad. Same with you my know? parents. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my dad, like, from my understanding, was totally okay with that. But then it was also the 70s. And, uh, you know, my parents own progress only got them so far because mm-hmm. it was like, my dad was okay with my mom making more money, but his career took precedence. So when it was time for him to start going abroad, my dad's a diplomat. So, you know, so this will probably clarify a lot of things for people. You know, when my dad started getting posting abroad, there wasn't any discussion of like, oh, what will my mom do with her career? My mom was very much just like, right, time for me to just like resign and, you know, start just focusing myself on my kids and my home and like your dad's career, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my mom was always so adamant about me and my sister going to college, like, She's just like, the one thing I want is for my daughters to go to college because she actually never had that opportunity um, to go. She was like an executive assistant for some really like highfalutin executive or something, which is why she made more than my dad, (laughs) you know? Um, So to her, it was really important that we go to college and that we don't get married before the age of 30. Like those were the two things I heard the most growing up. Um. But then I think there was a bit of that mind fuck where it's like, well, your parents are telling you one thing, but they're modeling another. Um, and so I think, kind yeah. Of, yeah. And I think part of the mistake I made when deciding to just like follow my ex-husband or something was the idea where it's just like, well, this is kind of what like wives do, even though yeah. I wouldn't consciously say that, you know, well, like I was, it was what was modeled to you. So you were like, oh, these are my choices. I guess I'll go along with the better of what seems like the two options. Right. Exactly. You know? Um, And so I think that was a lot, like it took me a while to deprogram that. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that too, at the time was just like, well, I was withdrawing from a PhD program. He had his career already set up in Chicago. So I'm just like, you know, like there was just a lot of kind of that repetition, but I guess I broke the cycle. (laughs) I think a lot of us are in the process of breaking familial cycles. Yeah. You know, like, and especially for women of our generation where we watched our, I don't know, I'm going to put a whole bunch of assumptions into the space, (laughs) but we watched our moms live into this new idea of what it meant to be a feminist Mm -hmm. and like work, work and raise kids and, 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 um, and so the, the women who didn't work were like, one thing and the women who did work were another thing. And then it just became, well, what do you actually want to choose? Yeah. Um, and so I know a ton of people I'm, I'm not married. I've never been married. And I think it's because I did the exact opposite of <laughs> my parents. Um, it was like, if, if these are the choices I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I kind of got to that. point. I mean, it's interesting because overall my parents' marriage has been fine. (laughs) I mean, you know, I want to say they've been together forever. And I know that they've had like rough patches and things like that. But I would say overall, in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty successful marriage, you know, like, they're still together, they still, you know, they support each other, they get along and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, it's like, having said that, though, it's, it's also still not a marriage I want. Because I do see the disparities between like, my dad's career versus what my mom had to sacrifice, you know, um, 
and and there is a lot of like my mom still to a certain extent catering to my dad not like in any weird like 1950s way but i just think in a like a very boomer way you know yeah it's it's like like, oh we love you we love each other so i'll give up what i'm doing for you yeah you know and it kind of like it goes down to little things and especially now because they're older too where my mom is just like well your dad is set in his ways like i'm never gonna change him i'm like that's probably true. It's like, but I just don't ever want to be with a person <laughs> where I'm like, I can't. He's sad in his ways and it's annoying. <laughs> I mean, but I think that there's also an element of truth to that where you have to just accept people for who they are and be willing to, like, in order to stay in the relationship, be willing to be a little bit annoyed sometimes. Yes, uh, that I agree with where it's like, that's another thing I learned from like my failed marriage. Um, and later on though, in other relationships I had with men where it's just like, but the big thing I learned is like, you are not going to change anyone. Yeah. So it's, you know, um, so it's like, so you either accept them fully for who they are with even the little things that might annoy you or like you walk out. Um, Well, that's gotta be a two way street too. Like they need to accept you fully and they need to be willing to be with your idiosyncrasies, even if it is like, all right, it's probably the case that 12 weeks out of the year, I'm going to bail on you. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. 100%. Um, But I will say just kind of talking about following parents or what parents modeled for you. Um. One of the things, though, that I did rescue from my parents or that I think they modeled well and that I'm kind of taking now mm-hmm. is the fact that you can be an adult and live in a bunch of different places and have it be a really great life. <laughs> so I'm just really curious. Is your yeah. protagonist in your YA novel living that kind of life? No, but she's in Catholic school, which was very formative for me. Okay. Yeah, so I kind of took, like, that part of my life, like the Catholic school part, to create this YA world. But in terms of her backstory or what I did, you know, she is, like, a Latina protagonist like me, but I've decided to make her mom, like, half, like, her mom Peruvian and her dad Argentinian because I spent my teen years in Argentina and I think somehow like it weirdly weaved that way um, Mm -hmm. in my narrative Um, and it obviously doesn't come up a lot because in YA it's like the teen is the center of the story but I do put in there little things you know like I made the like the dad have a very kind of nomadic life you know and I made the mom kind of be someone who lived between who spent like some years in Peru and then immigrated to like the U S with her family. Um, Cause I think to a certain extent, like that's, what's normal to me too. You know, yeah. like I didn't, I didn't want to be forced into making her like the quote unquote, like standard U S Latina immigration story where it's like the parents are from like the same place. And like, they came here, um, you know, together or something like that. Cause like, I know, you know, my family actually has a lot of like marriages between like Peruvians and other Latin Americans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, I'm an immigrant now, but like, 
I immigrated to the U.S. technically, I guess, when I was 24, you know, but I'm the only one. Like, it wasn't like a big family thing. It's just me. And I guess I kind of wanted to reflect like those type of immigration patterns, too. Yeah, like actually people living across the world and not just like a whole family up, uprooting themselves yeah. and replanting themselves in San Antonio or wherever. Yeah, um, exactly. Like I, you know, I'm trying to do that. And like I'm starting tentatively to work on another YA novel, which would have like two narrators. Um and I see myself kind of doing the same thing. Like in this particular case, I actually want them to be both Peruvian, but like I want one to have like a Venezuelan like dad because mm-hmm. half of my family is Venezuelan um, and, you know, and have her lived in like different places before getting to the States. And then kind of the other one just maybe have a little bit more of the standard, like, you know, my parents came here together type of thing. Um, yeah. Why? Yeah. Why YA? Why oh. young adult writing? Um, honestly, I tried doing more adult fiction and like it just, it felt very forced. And once I started writing the teen voice, it felt easier. <laughs> and uh, so that might just be my narrative voice. But I keep thinking that it's like, because I have wondered, like, why, why do I enjoy writing this type of voice so much? And I think mm-hmm. part of it is like, one, it's such kind of like a vivid time in your life, right? When everything is heightened. Um, and that's kind of what I find so fun. But to be honest, too, it's like, I remember my childhood and my teen years so much more than I do anything that happened from like the age of 22 and up. Like, I have no idea what's happened in my adult life. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> What do you, like, what do you make of that? I don't know. I think part of it, honestly, was maybe just because it seemed like my childhood was just a series of chapters, you know, where it's just like, oh, this is like my Peru chapter and my Argentina chapter and like the Switzerland chapter and the Connecticut chapter, you know? And so like, I think once, like after college and I I came to New York for grad school and then Chicago, it just became very amorphous precisely because I wasn't moving around that much. Mm. Um, And I think, I don't know. I'm just wondering if my brain is wired to where like it will always record like discoveries so much more than maybe like the slow burn of events that happen when you live in a place for a very long time. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, they say that like when you have depression or when you're depressed, you aren't likely to make memories. And I had really, mm-hmm. okay. In my twenties, like I went to law school and then I was a lawyer and then I lost my job. And in that, in the trauma of losing my very first professional job, mm-hmm. I lost a lot of memories. I don't have a lot of them. And I think in part for me, it's because of the depression of like trying to get through each day. Yeah. And I wonder if some of that 20s, like, I don't remember what happened has to like affect Shit. that for you. Whoa, Aaron, maybe I was depressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it way. doesn't sound like you were having fun. <laughs> no, this is like, by the way, I've had like a lot of years of therapy, um, but funny enough, like, you know, it kind of 
happen at like the tail end of my marriage. Right. And then Mm -hmm. like I kept at it for like a good five years until I left Chicago. But during like from my 20s till let's say like the year prior to me separating, I did it. And, uh, and you're right, I wasn't having fun. Like, I think now looking back on it, and it isn't just because of what you said, but there have been parts of me that have wondered, like, if I was just in a very extended depressed period. Mm-hmm. Um, but not and I think part of the reason why it's hard for me to tell it's because like, I was still functional, you know, like, I wouldn't have called myself depressed, like, I was still doing my work, I was still going out, but I felt like I was in the fog. Like that's classic depression. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you remember the commercial for like Prozac or Zoloft where the person had a black cloud that just followed them around everywhere? (laughs) Cause like, I don't remember my twenties as being fun at all. Like, I mean my college twenties. Yes. But once I arrived in New York, like not at all. And like the way that I like the narrative that I've created around that is like, all I did was studying because I was in this PhD program. And then I was in this like very stable relationship, right? Um, And so I liked living in New York, but it was literally like, I would maybe emerge from my library relationship cocoon, like, every four months have a rager like one lost weekend (laughs) which are really pretty much the only things I remember about New York during that time (laughs) and then like go back and um and that's why like I keep telling everyone that like I did New York in my 20s wrong you know Mm -hmm. like I feel like the New York of your and I even have an essay about this um which is coming up in an anthology but like the New York of my of like the knee the twenties, sorry, the New York of your twenties that is kind of like mythologized. Like I had that in Chicago after I got divorced. Um well yeah, because like you know the the New York of your twenties or twenties in any big city is like going out, dating, having fun, having interesting events happen. Right. It's totally not gonna happen if you're hanging out on your couch six nights a week with your spouse. Yeah, exactly. Or if like, and for me, it was the constant stress of like, I need to be doing more for this PhD program. So there was a lot of like, I can't allow myself to like, blow off steam or to have this thing because like, there's always so much more work, you know? Yeah. Um, And like, I wasn't really exploring other options career wise either. I wasn't really writing, which like, I now know is like, not a good sign for me, you know? (laughs) Um. Like not writing is kind of a chicken and egg situation where it's like, if I'm not writing, it's usually because like, I'm emotionally distressed in some way, but I'm also emotionally distressed if I don't write. Like I I know that part of my self-care is actually writing. Um, And so fuck, yeah, I think I might've been depressed. I mean, I was definitely depressed during my marriage, like 100%, but. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how you can look back at a relationship and be like, was I depressed because of the relationship (laughs) (laughs) or did the depression in, did my depression cause the end of the relationship? Like you can't, sometimes you can't tell. Yeah. And I honestly think, I mean, you know, this is like my ex and I don't get along, but I do want to respect him just as a person. And it's not his story to tell, but I do sometimes wonder if he too was depressed 
And so it's just like a terrible mix, you know? I mean, I think most bad relationships have some combination (laughs) of both people being depressed because it's hard to be in a dysfunctional relationship. If you're not depressed, then it's worrisome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, and I always, like, I hated Chicago the first three years I was there, which of course coincided with like my marriage going to shit. And then it was amazing how it's like a year after I separated just being like, oh, it wasn't that I hated the city. I just hated my life. And like, that's a really important distinction to make. It's a huge, how do you know when you don't hate your circumstances, but you hate your life? Like, how can you tell the difference? Um, that's a really, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can at the moment, to be honest. Like, unfortunately, some of it is hindsight. I think I've become better though, mm-hmm. you know, at it with um, like therapy, age, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think sometimes, yeah, I think sometimes like, Yeah, I really don't know because I'm trying to think like with jobs or something like that. But then, you know, if this if your circumstances are awful, then your life kind of becomes awful too. I can't how about this? I'll talk more about cities because I've moved around so much that um that I think I ha- I'm like a bit of an expert about like how to adapt to a new city or how to make a new city your home. And to me, it's like if you're constantly comparing whatever city you're in with whatever city you left behind, um, that's probably actually you hating your life and not the city. Mm. Um, I think that's a good distinction because what you're actually acknowledging in that moment is there was a time where I enjoyed things. Yeah. And here is what is different. So it's probably some of the change that might be making me a little unhappy right now. Yeah. Um, And in a way, it's like also closing you off to the possibility of liking something else. Like, I think that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's also just important to be aware of. Sometimes I like, when I get when I get in my mind that there is no way out, that there are no options, that's when I know I've gone down some like depressive hole. Yeah. Um, and I so actually, how, do, how do you yeah. get out of that? I, I muster the courage to talk about it with someone else because once you explain to them why there are no options, they actually start giving you all the options. Like, I know it can be annoying to people. I really don't mind. Like, I'm not the person who's just like, I just want you to listen. I actually don't like, I actually like it when people respond with feedback and give me options. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's good for me to get out of my head and actually tell people because then they just start kind of like poking holes at this like argument you've created that in your mind is completely like ironclad solid and they're like what are you talking about like you could do this or have you thought about this or you know have you tried this that's one way and sometimes like if for whatever reason I don't feel like I can talk to someone or whatever it is honestly just like sometimes writing it down and I do two things when I really get in my head, I tell myself, what is the absolute worst that could happen in this situation? 
Mm-hmm. Um, cause sometimes not all the time, but sometimes honestly, the absolute worst isn't even that bad. <laughs> like I, like for example, with quitting your job, you know, it's like, what is the absolute worst thing that can happen? And in my mind, like the absolute worst thing is it's like, well, I moved back to Peru with my parents and I'm sitting there thinking like, that is actually like a really great backup plan that I'm privileged to have because there are people who don't even have that, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that you have that as your absolute worst. Mine was, I have a very loving, supportive family. I totally could have done that. But my absolute worst was I sell my house and I live out of my car until all of the proceeds from owning my condo run out. And hopefully by between here and there, something good happens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I've definitely had some of like the catastrophizing or whatever you call it of that too like I mean I spent many years in therapy kind of talking about this because like my absolute worst would always lead to just like well I'm out on the street but then my therapist would always be just like but you know that's not true because you have like a supportive family you have friends you know like like you have a network that actually won't let you be out on the street. He's like, you might not like it. It might not be ideal for you to live with your parents, like in Peru where you don't want to live, but you won't be out on the street. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm like, touche, Dr. Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What is, so my therapist told me something that I remember all the time, which is that I am always vulnerable. And I, she's like, Aaron, you could walk out in front of your house and get hit by a bus. You are always vulnerable. And I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> Should have seen that bus coming. I can move. <laughs> like, right. What's the what's one of the things your therapist has told you that you go back to as a touchstone over and over and over again? Um hmm. so there's two. Cause I think they relate to like two different things that have traumatized me. <laughs> okay. Um, when it comes to relationships, the thing that I always turn to is him saying like, wanting to not be in a relationship is a good enough reason to end a relationship. Mm. Um, and he was talking specifically about like romantic ones, right? I'm not going to get into like other types, but I think that was really important for me to hear because I think one of the most toxic messages we get, and I think especially women get, is honestly that romantic relationships are work. I think that's bullshit. And I think it needs to be like exploded into smithereens. Um, but also it's like, and you have to make it work. Yeah, and I think like, it's the second thing that is actually problematic. It's like you the have to, and it's on you. Right. I I get that the I get that people will be just like no but relationships are work. I'm like relationships need to be nurtured. Nurtured is different than work though. Like it should feel like a passion project. It should feel like mm. this cool like canvas artwork that I'm doing. It shouldn't feel like I'm going to my fucking sucky 9 to 5 job but I'm making it work like But you get health insurance out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And I think, unfortunately, many of us have taken the like relationships are work to mean the drudgery as opposed to as opposed to meaning the like exciting, nurturing Mm -hmm. part, like Um, planting the seed and watching it grow part. Yeah. 
Exactly. It should feel like, oh, look at this beautiful rose garden. Our love is blooming. Um, so that's one. I think the other one is kind of like, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of the distillation that we talked about before, you know, where, um, I mean, he. I think he had a pithy way of saying it, but now I just can't remember. But yeah, he was he was very pro like the idea of like the idea of stability is a sham. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're yeah. always vulnerable. There's yeah. like no such thing as things are safe. There's no such things as like being in control. Yeah, exactly. You know, so um so I've kind of really taken that to heart and I feel more free since then. What does freedom feel like in your body? Ooh. Um, that's an interesting question. I just feel very comfortable, but I've always kind of, I, I, I am, I've always kind of had a very healthy relationship with my body. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I also don't know how that happened. Um, I think it might have been moving around and seeing how beauty standards are fucked up everywhere and being like, I'm opting out. I just don't give a shit. Um, But I think freedom in my body, maybe that's it. I really like to see my body as, as kind of like a conduit for joy. Like my body allows me to eat really great food and drink really good wine and walk around all these like beautiful locations and see them and smell things and like hear the sounds of like people I love, you know, like I, um, and yeah, I think that's all I can really say about freedom in my body. It sounds like expansiveness. Like the difference for you when you feel free and when you don't feel free is constriction. Like your body probably feels really tight. Mm. And then when you're, when your body feels free or when you feel free, everything is a possibility and like the world feels expansive. Yeah. I think that's a really great way of summarizing it. Yeah. Cause I know what freedom doesn't feel like. And mm-hmm. to me, it always just made me feel like I was, kind of like contorting myself in different like uncomfortable positions and just being made smaller and smaller. And I'm already pretty small. (laughs) (laughs) You You are not a small person. (laughs) You might be physically (laughs) less large than others. You are a big human in the best way. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up, um, Two questions. The first one is like, what is supportive for you? How can people who are listening to this support you? What would, what kind of help do you need? Oh, um, honestly, I think the best support I can get from people when talking about like the crazy decisions I'm making in my life is for them to approach it with a sense of curiosity Mm. instead of telling me all the cons. (laughs) 
that's why you're wrong about how you live. Yeah. I mean, I get that a lot because I'm like, I will voice out loud like, oh, I'm thinking of maybe going here, here and here. And people are just like, but have you heard of this? Or have you thought of this? I'm just like, yes. Like, again, I'm a woman. I'm a minority. I I, I have heard of this thing you call racism in Texas. <laughs> Somehow it has crossed my mind. You know what? That was a very thoughtful endeavor of you to think about racism in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think that's one way. I think in more tangible ways, and I mean, you know, this is for anyone who knows me or anyone who wants to look me up later. Um, Honestly, support my writing. Share the shit that I write. If my book ever comes out, either buy it or request it from the library. (laughs) Um, Sorry, and I will say this like, For anyone who has like writer friends or artist friends, it's like, uh, don't ask them to do shit for free. Uh, Mm -hmm. Make sure to either pay for their book, their artwork, their photo session, whatever it is. um, And don't ask for a friend discount. If you're like, okay, cool. But like, I really don't have money. Then again, the best way you can do is request things in the library, share their work, like retweet their stuff, tell your fancy friends about it. Um, And... Yeah, I think that's that's the best way people can support me and other creatives. <laughs> I will 100% echo the it is not harmful to you to share other people's voices. Yeah. Retweet stuff, share what people are up to. I feel like it's super supportive. Even if you just say something like, I really like what you did there. From the creator standpoint, it lands like, oh, thank you. I'm yeah. not working in a vacuum. <laughs> it's so true it totally is like I've I can't even begin to tell people how happy I am when I get like a dm from someone saying like oh I really enjoyed like your article or like this little recap and I'm like I can't believe someone took the time out of their life to just let me know they enjoyed my work and it, and like for the rest of the day I'll be so happy <laughs> like, yeah you know totally yeah mm-hmm. okay so my last question I ask this to everyone is what does success look like for you Oh, um, oh man, that's sound repetitive, but I have always equated success with freedom. Always freedom to do what you want, freedom to get what you want. I mean, you know, within like, not in Mm -hmm. psychopathic ways, but like, um, and you know, I mean, I realized that we live in a society where like freedom and money can sometimes be equated, but I've never been necessarily like money driven in a millionaire kind of way. Like just having enough to support myself and being okay with that too has actually been really freeing. Mm -hmm. Just being like, I actually don't need to make more than X amount. Like, because this is enough for me to support myself and have savings and all that kind of stuff, you know? So if we were looking from the outside, like what would we see when you know you've succeeded oh okay well in more tangible more in in less hippie ways for me (laughs) (laughs) but to a certain extent i think this goes with the freedom like uh success for me will be having several published books and speaking at conferences and schools because i love that shit Mm -hmm. and um and being able to kind of lift off my my writing in other ways. But I think, I guess it's, I'm kind of proud of myself for being halfway there because I'm already doing some of that. I'm just 
you know, but I'm still building. Like I still need to get to this hilltop that I've imagined. Yeah. Well, it's always a moving target, right? But, yeah. <laughs> and I don't hold anything with that as bad or wrong. I mean, I think that I love asking this question because in some ways, almost everyone says something of the, something to the effect of, oh, wait, I'm already pretty successful. <laughs> like It's just a really good reminder that you're doing great as you are. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's taken a long time, but most things do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait for your book to be published. If I knew a publisher, I'd send them to you, but oh. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you so much for doing Sorry. I got a phone call because no. I'm an image. I'm, I'm not good at podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I didn't put my phone on airplane <laughs> mode. Um, anything else that like, where can people find you? How can they support you, promote you, all of that stuff before we hang up? Yeah. Um, people can follow me on Twitter at IB rights and there they can find a link to my newsletter, which will come back up, uh, in September. It's called the cranky guide to writing where I basically just give people a really candid behind the scenes look at what it means to be a freelance writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for this coming September, I'm going to be writing a lot about trying to find an agent, um, oh, fun. which is a process that can be terrifying, um, but that I think might be exciting and like people cannot, I can't get enough at least of writing things about how to get an agent or reading things. <laughs> Yeah, probably because you're like, how do I do this? How do I get an agent? <laughs> yep. By the way, if anyone knows an agent for an ass, <laughs> send them my way. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I really loved having you today. No, thanks. It was so nice uh, talking to you and, and seeing you. Um, I know. Cool. All right. Thanks, Inez. Thank you. This Is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio. 